Well, well, well. Good morning, church. How are you guys? Good, good, good. So uh, you will probably notice that uh, my voice sounds a little scratchy. And uh, that is because it is a little scratchy. Um, This last week, uh, I had the uh, opportunity, like many of us do this time of year, uh, to to, uh, pick up a little cold. And this is the most frustrating uh, stage of a cold, isn't it? Where you feel fine because it's passed and all the stuff that made you feel terrible is gone, but your body doesn't know how to get rid of the stuff that's just right here. So you sound terrible, but you feel just fine. And so um, we have an incredible teaching team here. And um, every week as we prep for the sermon, we have several of our teachers ready to teach so that in circumstances like this, where either we're not feeling well, which if I was not feeling well and I was actually still sick, then we would have someone else teach. Or if it was just like this, my my voice isn't doing what it's supposed to, then we just make a phone call on Saturday or Sunday morning for that matter. And one of the other guys steps in. Except that um, this particular passage that we're stepping into, this particular sermon, I couldn't give away. I couldn't do it. Like, I literally couldn't, I'm like, I can't, as a matter of fact, after the 9 a.m., because I sounded like this, Brady came up to me and he's like, hey, if you just want to sit with your wife during this one and and have me do it, I'm I'm happy to do it. I mean, they're that ready. And I'm like, no, I I can't. What's happening in this passage, I I can't do it. So I know you're going to feel bad for me because you're going to think I'm struggling, but I'm not. This stuff in here, I just can't make it go away. So I feel fine. I feel great. I'm not even going to drink my water. So if you think in your head, get him some tea. Don't worry. I've had plenty. We're good. Okay. But what I do get to do, what I am absolutely blown away by is the honor that I get to be able to enter into God's word with you all and explore what the author we are encountering now in the book of Hebrews is presenting to us. As many of you know, if you've been around for a while, in 2006, we began a journey through the story of the Bible, through the the scriptures, uh, and we followed the historical chronology of scripture from Genesis onward. And so over the last 18 years, we've been traveling our way through, and we have arrived in this space right now where the letters we are encountering are toward the very end of the New Testament historical context. The book of Hebrews, where we find ourselves that we entered into last week, uh, is written toward the the very back end of the New Testament. In fact, after the book of Hebrews, historically, the only books left that we're going to encounter are 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation. So we are, in many ways, reading the final thoughts of the New Testament, the, the summarizing of, the concluding of things. It's always important when you are studying scripture to recognize where something is falling in the historical chronology because it reminds us of what is already available to the people encountering this book. And remember that the people encountering the book of Hebrews likely have at least had uh, uh, influence by or encounters with and at most even read much of the other authors of the New Testament. Paul's letters have been circulating for a long time by this time. Peter's letters have been circulating. John's letters have been circulating. Uh, A number of these things have been going around. And so this author in the book of Hebrews 
is, is writing into an audience that understands the gospel, uh, that understands who Jesus is and what he is able to therefore do is write very short, specific things that they can then extract from what they already understand from the rest of the New Testament. What's also beautiful about this particular book and when it's being written, uh, it's being written uh, somewhere around AD 68. So maybe AD 67, maybe AD 68. Remember that in AD 70, the temple is destroyed. Uh, Rome rises up under Nero and persecutes the followers of Jesus significantly. By AD 68, when this book is, or this letter is circulating or, or going to the audience that it's written to, the people are already under heavy persecution. And so the author of this particular book is, is going to do something profound, both for the people he is writing to and for the larger church. He's going to say to these people, I know that you are finding yourself under difficult circumstances. So difficult, in fact, that things are getting so hard that it is beginning uh, to become a question on whether it's worth following Jesus, right? And, and you and I, if, if we're honest, uh, we are not living under circumstances that, that feel like that. The kind of circumstances that say, if you choose to follow Jesus, it might cost you or your family their lives. You, you and I have not found ourselves in that position. And so part of us kind of says, man, for these folks, it's abandoning the faith because following Jesus has become so complicated. But for us, it actually plays out regularly in every day and week that we encounter. You and I spend our time each week with opportunities to choose to do things God's way or to choose to do things the way that seems less costly or easier than God's way. If you haven't yet encountered that, you will plenty of time. We're doing something God's way may seem that it's going to cost you far more than not doing it God's way. Or engaging in a conversation with someone about God might seem like an overwhelming decision because it's going to be terribly awkward or very strange or they might reject or think less of you. We face constant decisions on whether we're going to choose to trust God, do it God's way, engage in the realities of bringing God's truth to the table. And every time we face that, we are asking ourselves, is it worth following Jesus in this moment? And this author of the book of Hebrews is going to take a people group who are literally considering their lives as a possibility of losing. And so they're rightly wrestling with whether they should stay faithful to Jesus. And he is going to say to them, absolutely 100% worth it staying faithful to Jesus. But the question becomes, how, why is he saying that? Why is he saying it's so worth it? So, so what what is this author doing? He's jumped into this book, as we discovered last week, right away uh, by saying, listen, in the beginning, long ago, God has spoken to us in many ways and many times, through the prophets, through encounters with God. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And, and by, by doing that, instead of saying, and he has spoken to us by his son. He's spoken to us many ways and he's spoken to us by his son. He didn't say that, he said what? But now he's done something different. He's separating those two ideas. There was a version of him speaking that was profound, wonderful, and beautiful. 
But now something bigger has happened. Something better has happened. Something greater has happened. And when we hear that, what we ought to ask ourselves is why is it so much greater that he has spoken through his son than that he had spoken through prophets or encounters that he actually showed up on the planet in different ways? A pillar of fire, a pillar of smoke, a burning bush, you name it, a multitude of times where the human race encountered God. Why is this that he has spoken through his son so profoundly significant? And how does that relate to the idea that I should stay faithful to Jesus because or when things get hard. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is spending this entire book unpacking for us. He is gonna show us through this book over and over and over again, these two realities. One, that our Messiah, our savior, Jesus, our King is all sufficient. He is completely enough. There is no circumstance There is no relational dynamic. There is no resource challenge. There is no cost, no price, no reality, no difficulty in which he will not be sufficient and enough. And even what sufficient and enough means, not just a hypothetical, he's enough, but that actually when we rightly understand who Jesus is and what it means that he's sufficient, we will be able to live in the midst of those difficult things with a clarity and a ability to be able to say, staying faithful to Jesus makes all the sense in the world. And what he's going to demonstrate is this. The reason we can say that Jesus is all sufficient is because he is totally supreme. He is completely sovereign. There is no supremacy above or outside of him. Now, why why do those two relate? Because for anyone to be totally sufficient, it would mean that there is nothing outside of their authority, right? Right? Do you get that? Because if there was something greater than Jesus, something greater than his authority, something more powerful than him, something more capable than him, then he is not all sufficient. Do you understand that? Because if that thing that was greater than him, that power that was greater than him would encounter you, then could he be sufficient for you if that thing is greater than him? No. So in order to be all sufficient, you have to be all supreme. You have to be totally supreme. And that's what the author of Hebrews is presenting to us over and over again. He is greater than anything and everything that you have ever conceived of. Anything that's wonderful, greater than the angels, greater than the law and righteousness itself. He transcends it. Greater than Moses and any Messiah before him. Greater than the priesthood. Greater than the sacrificial system. Greater than the covenants and the promises. He is greater than all of it. He is completely, totally, 100% supreme in everything. And because he is, he is all sufficient. And because he's all sufficient, you're safe. You're safe because he's all sufficient. That's what this author is doing. And though he's going to do that for the entirety of this book, over and over again, in this little introduction that he is laying out for us after he's just said, God has spoken in many ways and many times, powerfully, supernaturally. But in these last days, he has spoken by his son. He is now going to say, why is that such a big deal? 
And so that's what we're jumping into today. He is going to come to us today and say, ladies and gentlemen, may I present to you your king and my king, King Jesus, so that you would be like, what? That's what's about to happen. So grab your Bibles and let's jump on in and see. We're going to go to the book of Hebrews uh, chapter one uh, in the introduction. I'm going to see where this author runs us. So uh, Hebrews chapter one, verse one, it started long ago, many times, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now, this is a fascinating way of demonstrating supremacy or demonstrating sovereignty. Jesus is the heir to how many things? All things. So that includes what? Everything. Is is this leaving anything out? So if you are the heir of all things, then all things belong to you. And the idea that all things belong to you means that you have authority over all things. He is the authority over all things because how many of those things belong to him? All of them. So the author starts out by saying, you have to understand that he, Jesus, the one I'm introducing to you, owns what? Everything. Everything. There's nothing that's not his. All of it is his. Everything. This is a statement of authority, a statement of supremacy, a statement of power, a statement of ability. It is the ownership of the keys to everything. We see this reality play out throughout scripture um, as these things play out. In Matthew uh, chapter 16, in verse 19, there is this little statement Jesus makes. So he's hanging out with the disciples um, and, and he's asking them, who do people say that I am in Matthew chapter 16? And, and they're saying different things. And then he says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the, the Christ, the son of God, the Messiah. And Jesus says, you're, you're right, Peter. It's exactly who I am. And I am going to build this thing called my church. And because my church has me, the gates of hell, darkness itself, death itself will not prevail against me and against my kingdom, and against my church. And then he says this, right after that in verse, in, in verse 19 of chapter 16, and I will give you the keys to my kingdom. If Jesus can say to the disciples, them and us, I will give you the keys to my kingdom, what does it mean Jesus holds in his hands? The keys to his kingdom, the keys to everything. In Matthew chapter 28, when he's sending the disciples out and he's saying, okay, go into all of the world and and tell people who I am, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I will be with you always to the ends of the earth. How does he start that statement? All authority has been given to me. How much authority? all authority. So what the author of Hebrews is starting out with is this, how much does Jesus own? All of it. How much authority does he, what what does he have authority over? Everything. There's nothing outside of his supremacy, nothing outside of his authority, because he is the heir of all things. 
Now, when you first hear this language, he is the heir of all things, it may suggest to you, as it rightly might, that he did not have authority over all things, but at some point he became the heir of all things because God made him the heir and then he gained authority. But then the next sentence that the author puts kind of puts a, 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 a weird, like, wait, wait, that doesn't make any sense. He is the heir of all things, but take a look at what happens next. It says, he is the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. So here's, here's what it's saying. Jesus, this Jesus I'm presenting to you, this Messiah, this, this king, he is the heir of all things and all things were made by him and through him, right? In the letter of Colossians, uh, where Paul was writing to the church in Colossae, Paul put words to this that were incredible. Listen to this real quick. In Colossians chapter one, Paul writes, and he, and he writes these words, listen. <clears throat> verse, uh, verse 16 of chapter one. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So who made all things? Jesus did. Who's heir to all things? Jesus is. Isn't that weird? If you made all things, what belongs to you? All things. So why do you need to be heir to all things if all things are already yours? It's a little weird, isn't it? It's not weird at all. Because what the author of this passage is doing, like many other authors in the New Testament have done, is demonstrating to us what is perhaps one of the most wondrous realities of the God we serve and makes the reality of who Jesus is most wondrous. The God we serve is in fact a singular being, a God, a singular being, but he exists within that singularity in community. He is something we are not. He is a being that is in of himself, embodies in of himself community. We call it the triunity of God. That God who is how many gods? That you, so you're like one, three. The, the right answer, in case you're wondering, is that he is one God. He is one being. He is a singularity. Here, O Israel, uh, is written in Deuteronomy. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. This is our God. It is not our gods. It is our God. But our God does something we cannot do. He exists within his being. Uh, he includes within his being community. And when you have community, you and I understand community. What is community for us? When I am with you. That's right. When we're together, we have what we call relationship. And relationship has dynamics, doesn't it? Uh, in a relationship, the point of community and relationship is that there's a dynamic. There's a give and take. There's a receive. There's an honoring of each other. There is a submission mutually to one another. What we find in the story of scripture is that God is simultaneously at all times 
totally and completely a singular God with singular authority. But within himself, he interacts in community and he interacts like you would expect community to interact, honoring one another as three persons. Now we say, this doesn't make any sense. That's because we have no context in of ourselves for that kind of community. When God created Adam and Adam was hanging out in the garden, what did God say about Adam before he created Eve? It is not good that Adam is by himself, right? Why did God create Eve? Because Adam was lonely and Adam was sad and Adam didn't know what to do with himself and he needed a playmate. Adam had God. Is God sufficient? Is God enough? Do you think Adam was lacking because God wasn't enough for him? What did Adam lack? Adam lacked the ability to rightly image a God who embodies within himself community because Adam couldn't display community without what? Another person in play. So God creates the human race and community because we are the image bearers of God. And the only way we could bear the full image of God was by being a people of community. That's why so often the scripture speaks of the idea that people know we follow Jesus or we follow God because of our love for each other, our relationship with each other, our communal reality. That's why Jesus prayed in his last prayer before he goes to his death and resurrection, God, make him one. Make them together because I've created them to display me in that way. Because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are, he is a singular God that embodies community. So can we say that God the Father created all things? Yes. Can we say Jesus the Son created all things? Can we say the Holy Spirit created all things? Yes, because Father, Son, Spirit is God. But Father, Son, Spirit exists and embodies within himself that beauty of community. So though it is mysterious in some ways, it is in fact one of the great wonders of the great king we serve. And what it begins to display, which is what this author is doing, is that this, this Jesus who is our Messiah, this Jesus who is our king, he is not another Messiah in the line of great messiahs. He is not the best Messiah. He is not the most powerful Messiah. He is not the man who has been most empowered by God to save us. He is something far greater than that. See, because in the people's minds, pre the New Testament and pre unpacking the wonder of who Jesus was, the people understood the coming Messiah as one who would be greater than the Messiahs before, but everybody would have assumed it would be a human empowered by God to set up a throne that would last for how long? In the prophecies of the Old Testament, how long would the throne of this Messiah last? Forever. So the idea would be just like you would logically think of a throne that lasts forever. Someone is set up as king, they have such authority and power that they set up a, a kingship that is able to withstand anything that comes against it and their children become kings and their children becomes kings and you have a dynasty that lasts forever. But what the, what the prophets couldn't have known fully, what the people couldn't have known fully is that this king isn't going to have a throne that lasts forever because he's gonna have a great dynasty. He's actually going to be the king for how long? 
forever because he is not a Moses. He is not a man empowered by God to save us and more empowered than other messiahs. He is in fact God, the creator and sustainer himself come to us to save us. God is doing this himself. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is when I say you're safe and it's worth following Jesus, it's because Jesus is all sufficient and he's all sufficient because Jesus is totally supreme and he's totally supreme because he's God, because he is your creator. He is your sustainer. And as though we couldn't catch that from everything we've just read, the author of Hebrews is like, in case I'm not being clear about what I'm trying to say, let's see what he writes next. And then he writes this. Whoops, I'm still in Colossians. Go back to Hebrews. Here we go. Listen, he says this. And, and through whom all he, uh, and through, and through whom also he created the world. And then he says, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So when you talk about this language, the radiance of the glory of God, what comes to mind? Radiating the glory of God. What do you, what do you think about? What is, what is the picture in your head? The sun, that's right. That's when we use the word radiates, right? Because there is a light and it does what? It it radiates out. So when we say God's glory radiates out, we're talking about the rays of something. When you experience the sun, and thank goodness here in Florida, we get that privilege most days of the year. Yesterday was the exception, right? So we are the sunshine state, baby. Come on now. And we love the sun. And when you experience the sun, what are you experiencing from the sun? It's rays. That's right. Thankfully, you're not having the sun show up because we'd all die. The rays of the sun come and we are the recipients of those rays. Are the rays different than the sun? And you're like, what? No. The rays of the sun are the sun. We're encountering the sun. So what what the author here is saying is, think of Jesus the same way you would think of the rays or radiance of the glory of God. It's not a separation. It's not different. It's not less It is simply the most profound and direct experience that we have of God's presence with us. When the people of the Old Testament experienced God in a pillar of fire or a a cloud by day or a burning bush or the multitude of other encounters they had with God, what this author is saying is those were awesome. Jesus showing up is better. It's greater. It's more profound. It is the very radiance of God's glory with us. This is God with us. And then as though uh, just to say, okay, still not enough. You're still not quite getting it. He, He goes like this. He is the what imprint of the nature of God? The exact imprint. I've told you guys before. Pay attention to every word in scripture because there is not a word in all of scripture that the spirit of God did not intend to put there, that those authors didn't write inspired by the spirit of God. So could this author inspired by the spirit of God simply written this? He is the imprint of God's nature. Sure he could have. And would that have said exactly the same thing? Sure it would have. He is the imprint of God's nature, but he wants to drive a point home to us so that we cannot walk away with this thinking for a second that Jesus 
is anything less than God himself. So he says this, he's not just the imprint of God's nature. He is the what imprint? The exact imprint. He is God. He is not a reflection of God. Like you and I are image bearers of God. Jesus is God with us. God speaking to us. God rescuing us. And then <laughs> this author says this. Of uh, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds. What does the word uphold mean? It is uh, a word that means exactly the same as uh, to hold together or exactly the same as to sustain. He upholds or he sustains or he holds together what? He upholds the universe. The universe. The universe is in our language, everything we know that is created, right? I mean, that's sort of our entire existence, our entire existence is this little thing we call the universe. And here he's saying this. He didn't just create all things. He holds together or upholds what? All things. The entire universe. Listen again to what the author, uh, what Paul, when he write, writes um, Colossians, says about this particular thing. Listen to this. In that same passage, Colossians chapter 1, he says this. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. We've read this. Where thrones or, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he, Jesus, is before how many things? All things. And in him, watch this, all things hold together. So this is crazy. In, in order to demonstrate the supremacy of Christ, here's what the author of Hebrews is doing. Do you realize, human being, that you are not self-sustaining? You say, what? You are not holding yourself together. You don't exist independent of God's supremacy. You don't exist independent of God's holding you together. How crazy is that? We feel very self-existent, don't we? Don't you feel very self-existent? You're like, I exist because now I'm here. I was created in my mother's womb. I was born. Now I exist. You don't. You are held together. You are upheld. You are, you are, you are kept. You are sustained. And who are you sustained by? Jesus. That's right. Do you understand what this author's doing? If you want to know how supreme Jesus is, if you want to know how sufficient Jesus is, help, let me help you understand this. You sitting here and breathing is because he is choosing to sustain you. And you're like, what? And so what he's trying to get at here is, tell me an enemy. Tell me a danger. Tell me a circumstance. Tell me a trouble that is bigger than that. He has your story. He sustains you. He made you. He keeps you. And how long will he sustain you for? We have found out from scripture that we are given what kind of life because of Jesus? Eternal life. So how long is he going to do this sustaining work for you? Forever. Can, can you imagine a greater supremacy than that? A greater sufficiency than that? 
This is the Jesus we're talking about. This is the reality of who Christ is. He sustains us. Now watch this. And you might be sitting here and go, I, I can't take it anymore. Good, because there's more. If you think that's enough about him, how incredible Jesus is and how we have every reason to trust him, then here comes a little more. And there's even more next week after this and for the weeks to come in this incredible book we're in. But listen to this. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. When you read things like this, you know, we read the Bible so often and we just kind of skip over these little things. By the word of his power, it sounds romantic, doesn't it? Like more fun. It's a nicer way of saying by his power. It's not a nicer way of saying by his power. It's actually another clear demonstrate demonstration of how authoritative Jesus actually is. Because it would be one thing to say this, he holds the universe together by his power, right? So if you are a very powerful person, a very powerful being, and you can take your power and you can hold something together by your power, it is your power that is allowing that thing to be held together. Are you with me so far? But it didn't say he is holding it together by his power. He said he's holding it together by what? The word of his power. What this is saying is that God is so authoritative that when he says something, it is. Do you understand that? It's different than power. This is about authority. This is about the power to say something. And when you say it, you have such authority over everything that nothing will happen except for exactly what you say. When all things were created in Genesis, what did it say? God did what? He spoke. And what happened when he spoke? Whatever he said happened. That's authority, folks. That's more than power. That's authority. And then in John chapter one, what did John write? In the beginning, verse one of chapter one, was the word. What an interesting thing to call Jesus. He was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And all things were made by this one who is the word. There is this reality that when we can take our words and we can say something, and because we say it, it happens, that's authority. I don't need to exert my power. My power is in the words of my authority. And what this author is saying is, our God is so powerful, he doesn't have to hold the universe together with his power. He holds the universe together by just simply saying it should be held together. That's how authoritative he is. So again, what is this author trying to do? Show me a circumstance. Show me an enemy. Show me a problem. Show me a, a trouble. Show me a weight. Show me a difficulty that is not under that supremacy and that authority. You can't because I have supremacy over how many things? All things. I am the heir to what things? All of it. I created what things? All of it. I sustain what things? All of it. It's almost like this author saying this. Pick a narrative. Inheritance, creation, sustaining, power, authority. He has it all. He has it all. He has it all. This same author, a little later on in this letter, in chapter 12, is going to write these words, which we'll get to toward the end of this year. He's going to say, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author 
and finisher of your faith so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And he's gonna say that with this in mind. If you and I can make sure every day that we do not forget who our king is, that he is all sufficient because he has how much authority? All authority. He is totally supreme. He is completely sovereign. There is nothing that exists or doesn't exist that isn't under his authority, held together by the word of his power. You should have nothing to fear. Yes, trouble will come. Yes, it will be hard. Yes, you will feel all the human things you feel when trouble comes. Sad and difficult and anxious and all that. Great, but you do not need to be afraid because when you are in the most dangerous chapter of your life story, you are still in the safest story you can ever imagine because Jesus is the king of your story. Jesus is the king of your life and you belong to Jesus. So what this author is going to do over and over and over and over again for the rest of this book. Every time he's gonna to come to us and he's gonna say this. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure that today has its heart in it. I'm sure that you have reasons in your head to say, it's not worth trusting God. It's not worth doing it his way. It's not worth engaging in the things that he's calling me to engage in. There's an easier, better, safer way. It might feel that way, but listen, let me remind you who my king is. And then he's gonna go, this is my king. This is my king. This is your king. So that we can all shout together over and over and over and over again. That's my king. That's my king. So that <clears throat> when I feel overwhelmed and when I want to bail on faithfulness to my king, I can fix my eyes on him and remind myself, that's my king. That's my king. So may that be our mantra for the rest of this year and perhaps for the rest of our lives, that whatever we face today, however glorious or however dangerous or however difficult, we would say, oh, Renault, don't forget. Don't forget that you would say it to me and I would say it to you. Oh, Renault, don't forget. Don't forget who your king is. That I could say with you, that's my king. Who is my king? He is Jesus. He is totally sufficient. He is totally authoritative. He is totally supreme. He is totally sovereign and he is mine and I am his and I am safe because he is my king. That is my king. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the, the meticulous time throughout human history to show yourself to us in such precise detail first through the prophets and through encounters we have seen our ancestors have with you, where you laid out over a long span of our human story what you were up to, and then to bring it all into clarity as you showed up and as the author of Hebrews says, though <coughs> it's awesome that you spoke in so many ways in so many times through the prophets, that now you have spoken with your own voice. You, God, have shown up. Your son is here. Thank you for taking the time to show us 
the extent of what it means that Jesus is our Messiah, that he is all-sufficient, totally supreme, completely sovereign, and has authority over all things. Remind me this day that I am safe, not because my circumstances feel safe, not because my enemies aren't rising up against me, perhaps not because I, I'm not stuck in relational difficulty, not because the choices I'm making to follow you are not costly, but because you are my king and you are a good king who is all-sufficient and completely supreme. So may I fix my eyes on you every day and run with perseverance the race marked out for me, reminding myself that I have no need to grow weary or lose heart because you are my king. So may we shout over and over again to one another in the days and weeks and months and years to come, that is my king, Jesus, and he is greater, he is better, he is more than enough. Show us the way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.